0: Bob, Bob wrote that song. That was really well done. Thank you, Bob. We are going to be back in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, I will invite you to turn there. And if you don't have one, there should be one in the seat pocket uh, nearby you. And you can grab that and use it this morning. Take it with you if you need one. But uh, it's good to look at God's word together as we... Um, come into this time. Hebrews chapter 10 verse uh, 19 to 25. We started this last week and um, as I was thinking about where we went last Sunday, I was thinking about uh, 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 for our prayer gathering this past Thursday. This was our, our scripture that we looked at and it says, if we, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that is Jesus, we have fellowship one with another. And so that idea of walking in the light with, with Jesus gives us fellowship, brings us together. But then it kind of dawned on me that the reverse of that, if we aren't in fellowship, if we aren't one with another, It's hard to stay in the light of Jesus. And I really think that we are seeing that happening, not only among us here, but everywhere. As fewer and fewer people are coming together in fellowship, it's getting harder and harder to stay in the light of Jesus. Do you see it? Now, I'm preaching to the choir, Because you're here not only uh, in the midst of COVID, but you're here in the midst of a winter storm. So you're here. You understand the value of fellowship. But for many, they're missing this. And there's a cost. And I've said this before. I'll say it again. Maybe I see it more than others as a pastor. But people are struggling there is a sense of uh, discouragement. There is a spirit of, of I want to say, kind of blindness that's coming over many that when you get out of fellowship, you're not in the light, and you struggle to walk in the way that we should. And we're seeing that more and more, and there's, there's stress within families, There's just a whole cascading series of consequences, I think, to this not being together as we should. So that has helped to motivate this study here in Hebrews chapter 10 that we started last week, and we're going to finish it this week. But let me read verses 19 through 25 here as we get started. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray that as we study it this morning, we will hear and receive from you. You uh, give us the bread of life, and I pray that we each come hungry And Lord, I know that we have nourishment here for us. So help us to receive. Help me to uh, just present this as clear as possible. And we want your name to be lifted up. Amen. So I want to summarize a little bit where we were last week, because we focused on verses 19 through 23 last week. Today, we're going to just focus on 24 and 25. It'll be good to kind of bring us up to speed and review a little bit where we were at. He starts in 19 by saying, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, he speaks of the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ, that we don't have to be uh, uh, fearful or ashamed or doubtful about what we can and can't do. Uh, with In the presence of God, because of what Jesus has done for us. We have confidence, he says, by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, who we realize gave his blood. He died on the cross for our forgiveness. And he, he goes on to describe other things that Jesus did that gives us this confidence. He says, he has made a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. And then another example of how Jesus helps us, it says in verse 21, that he is our great priest over the house of God. Now, the writer of Hebrews here is piling up a lot of metaphors or ways of describing Jesus to us. He is the, the blood. He is the sacrifice. He is the, the curtain, or he opens the curtain. He's the temple, and he's also the high priest. He does everything, doesn't he? He he opens this way for us to come into the presence of God. And you might remember that story when Jesus died on the cross, that temple veil was torn in two at the moment Jesus died. When his blood was shed, the curtain was torn in two. The way into the Holy of Holies in the temple was made open so that we can enter in. We have confidence to enter in, not in fear, but in faith because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the foundation to all of this. That's the gospel message. That's our hope. That's what we hold on to. That's what gives us life. And that's what we, where we start with. Be, he's saying that since we have this, since Jesus has done this, because we have this confidence, then, verse 22, he says, let's draw near. Let's draw near. That is, let's get closer to God. Let's walk with God. Let's abide with God. Let's get uh, a closer into fellowship with God. He says we can do this with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, with a clean conscience. All of these things describe how we draw near to God because of what Jesus did for us. And you might, you know, say, I don't feel like my heart is very true. There's a lot of dishonesty in me and My integrity is not what it should be. Or maybe I don't feel like I've got full assurance of faith because I'm looking at my life and at myself and realizing I'm not measuring up. Or my conscience isn't so clean. There's a lot of sin that still needs to be dealt with. And remember, we draw near not because of our goodness, but because of God's grace that he opens that way for us. He gives us a true heart. He gives us assurance of faith as we look to him. He washes our conscience clean as we confess our sin, as we trust in him, as we walk in his way. That's how this works. So we can draw near with confidence because of who Jesus is. And not only are we to draw near, verse 23 says, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast. And what are we to hold fast to? We are to hold fast to the confession of our hope. That is, what we believe in, the promise that we look forward to, what Jesus Christ has done for us, that we know that we can hold fast to that hope without waiving, wavering. And why? Because he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. This is all about Jesus, isn't it? When we doubt our salvation, we shouldn't look at ourselves, but we should look at the one in whom our faith has been placed. Look to Jesus. Trust in him. He is the one who does not waver. He is faithful. So we can draw near, and we can hold fast. That's what we looked at last week. But I, I realize we have a hard time drawing near. We have a hard time holding fast. It's a struggle. And I think every one of us understands that struggle if we have tried and and, and been there and have failed. And I think part of the reason it can still be a struggle for us, one of the reasons at least, is that I think we have put a lot of stock, maybe too much, Stock in the idea of personal devotions as being the way in which we draw near and hold fast to God. Now that's going to sound really strange coming from me because I really emphasize a lot the importance of you personally seeking God, taking time to read your Bible, taking time to pray, taking time on your own, just getting closer to God in faith. And so we emphasize that idea of personal Devotion to God as a way to hold fast and to draw near. But I think it's hard for us to do this by ourselves. In fact, uh, it's not the way God made us. It's not the way God made the church. If we want to really hold fast and draw near, we cannot do it on our own. When we look at this passage, the one thing that stands out is over and over again, he says, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. He doesn't say, let me or let you. It's us. It's we. It's together. It's one another. We do this together. When God created the world, Think back to Genesis chapter 1. When God created the world, each day of creation, he looks at what he makes and he says it is good, right? He separates the light and the dark. Day one, he says it was good. He puts the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky. He says it's good. He creates the, the fish and the animals and everything he does is good. All of creation is good. And so often I, I have said this myself. Things didn't turn bad until the fall. There was nothing wrong until Adam and Eve sinned because everything about the creation was good. But did you know there's one thing that Genesis tells us was not good even before the fall? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, I think it is, um, God says, It is not good for the man to be alone. Not good for the man to be alone. There's something that wasn't good even before the fall. And what was it? Being alone. God knew that we could not be who he created us to be, that we could not have fellowship with him as he wants us to have fellowship with him if we are all alone. We need someone with us. We were never meant to be just one-on-one with God. And if you want to think about maybe what's so wrong with so much of spirituality today is because it's become so hyper personal, so hyper individualistic. We have forgotten that it takes others. It takes fellowship. It takes community. John Wesley was the founder of the Free Methodist Church. He once said this. He said, holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. He says, the gospel of Christ knows no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. Now he's um, saying here that there's just really no place in the gospel for a holy solitary, that we must come together if we are to know what holiness is. It's, It's something that we cannot do alone. It's something that we cannot do in isolation from others. Holiness should not equal loneliness, Instead, it should bring us into fellowship with others. So that's really what Hebrews is emphasizing here in these verses. And it's going to get real clear in verses 24 and 25. And that's the the heart of where we're going today. So look now at verse 24 with me. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. So the, the, the emphasis there is on stirring up. Maybe your Bible says spur on. Some translations use the word provoke. How can we provoke each other to love and good works? So when, when we think of that word provoke, I think it usually in a negative way. Um, we're good at provoking each other to anger uh, to anger to cynicism, to criticism. Uh, We provoke each other when we're not happy with each other or when we're fighting with each other. But here we're to provoke each other to love and to good works. Instead, we often provoke each other to unlove and to bad works. I remember uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. It's a, a, a book he wrote just kind of imagining what hell is like. And it's, it's, a, it's sort of a, a f- allegorical sort of thing. I mean, he's not literally trying to describe the nature of hell. But in this story, these people get on this bus, and this bus takes them uh, between heaven and hell, and they see the difference of the two. And, 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 and C.S. Lewis, in the kind of his imaginative sort of way, describes hell as this place where people just keep moving further and further away from each other that's what it is summed up as in his in his picture that the people just hate being around each other they don't they can't find a way to get along so they just move and then they get upset with somebody else and they move again and they just keep spreading further and further they provoke each other to unlove and ungood works and so hell is this picture of people being completely isolated until they become nothing. The opposite of what God calls us to, which is to stir up one another to love and to good works. And isn't it true that we're more likely to engage in love and good works when we have the help of another with us? It's a lot easier. It's just a lot more fun. When there's somebody else to do it with. How many of you have been on one of our mission trips over the years? A lot of hands going up. Yeah. There's a reason we love doing these mission trips. We've been to Haiti and Nicaragua and uh, other states like Tennessee or Wisconsin. The youth have been to Wisconsin. Uh, we, we've been all over the world on mission trips. And it's a lot of fun because we are... Working hard, aren't we? Oftentimes, it's very labor-intensive, very hot, sweaty work building churches in tropical countries and things like that. And you might say, that just seems miserable. But it's a blast because we do it together. We spur one another on. And that's the way, what the nature of these teams are. That's how God works. We we come together. We get excited. We have fun. But doing it ourselves... it's totally different. I, I, I remember running in cross country or track. And what a difference it is when you run with a team versus running by yourself. Running by yourself is just hard to get the motivation to, to even just get up and to go, but let alone push for a new personal record. But when you've got a team around you of other people that drive you forward, it, it makes all the difference. This is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us, let's stir up one another together to pursue love and good works. Maybe one more example of this, just in how isolation always uh, makes things harder. Um, I remember, I think I was just in college, maybe just out of high school, I had a friend of mine uh, back home, and maybe I've told this story before, I can't remember, I, I probably repeat myself sometimes, but I remember he had decided he was going to get up early in the morning to exercise every day. And he was just living at home. He was all pretty much by himself. And so it was hard for him when he set the alarm to wake up early, early in the morning, early enough to do the exercises that he wanted to do. So he found that if he set his alarm, he would hit the sleep button and then go back to sleep. You've done that before, right? So he built this little box with a lock on it and he locked the alarm inside the box. So it would start going off and he'd have to find the key, open the box to get to the alarm, push the sleep button. And he figured if by the time I've gotten the key and opened the lid and gotten into the alarm, then I'll be awake enough to go about my day. Well, he found that he was still hitting the sleep button and going back to bed. So he decided he was gonna to have to do something with the key. And he would hide the key somewhere on the other side of his bedroom, and he'd get up and uh, have to find the key, and then find the box, and open it up, and get the thing off. And he thought, well, then I'll stay up, then I'll be awake. But no, he was still climbing back into bed. Anyway, one thing led to another, and eventually he decided he would take that key, get a a, a, a half a Leader, of Mountain Dew, drop the key into the bottle, close the lid, and have that all ready for him so that he'd have to wake up, drink the Mountain Dew, get the key out, open the box, shut off the alarm. Uh, It's hard when you're by yourself, isn't it? Wouldn't it be easier to have somebody else there as part of your team, you know, knocking on your door saying, hey, wake up, let's do this. And spiritually, I think that's the case too. We get these high goals and ideals that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, pursue Jesus, I'm going to read my Bible for an hour a day and pray all this, and then you don't. Why? Well, because you're trying to do it all by yourself. Oftentimes, that's the biggest problem. When you look at the early church, Christians were always doing things together. Uh, I just you know, immediately think of Acts and all the different examples from the book of Acts of the church coming together and doing things. And I just want to read briefly from Acts 4. 32 and 33. Think about what they did. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus in great grace was upon them all. And it just goes on to talk about how they shared with others who had need and they came together and they worshiped together and they prayed together and they they studied the scriptures together. And all this was done together. Um now this isn't to be confused with, you know, some form of socialism. It was voluntary. They did this because they wanted to. And this isn't to encourage laziness on the part of those who don't want to work. These are the same people who said, if you don't work, you don't eat. But the point was, God has compelled them out of Christian love to come together, to care for the needs of others. And they do it joyfully. And they do it so joyfully that others see it and say, wow, what do they have? That is what the church is called to be. And if the church can be like that, in that kind of a, a demonstration of love and good works. If we can spur one another on, stir one another up to that, think of what our impact will be in this world today. Just another example from First Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to turn there uh, quickly. First Timothy chapter 6 verses 18 and 19 describes a similar truth. Um, It says, they, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This idea of doing good works together, stirring one another up together, to sharing with one another from what we've been blessed with. For about the last, I don't know, four or five years, um, my family has not had health insurance. And some of you know that because you're a part of the leadership. And it's not that we don't have anything to provide for us, but we're a part of what's called Samaritan Ministries. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Samaritan Ministries or other organizations like it, but it's not technically insurance. But here's how it works. Every month, I get a note. Uh, about somebody somewhere in the United States who's also a part of Samaritan Ministries who has a medical need. Maybe they had a baby. Maybe somebody had surgery. Maybe somebody was in the hospital because they were sick. And I get a little note about these people and about their need, and I write them a check, send it through the mail, and I let them know I'm praying for them. And, And we commit to praying for them. And when we have a need... Say when one of our kids, uh, well, there's lots of things our kids have done (laughs) that have required medical bills. We, We share our need with Samaritan Ministries, and they share that need with other members, and the checks come to us. And in the four or five years that we've been doing this, every bill we've ever had has been met. We've never had anything that was not paid for. And it's really cool because, well, not only is it, a fraction of what we would have to spend if we were using traditional health insurance. It also connects us with other people all over the country through prayer, through encouragement, and through financial assistance. I mean, in some ways, that's exactly what the church is supposed to be and to do. And it's really amazing how that works. But this is how we we can spur one another on, stir one another up, to this love and good works. And then next, it says we are to meet together. To meet together. Uh, let's look at verse 25. He puts it here in the negative, saying, don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we are to meet together. We are to not neglect what we're doing here today and at other times. And I just want to say that what's happening across our country today is unconscionable in so many places, so many states where churches are still not allowed to meet together. It's terrible. It's essential to who we are as Christians that we come together. Now I don't say that maybe giant mega churches with, Tens of thousands of people should be gathering together all at once. Maybe there are some practical things that could be done to to do things safely. But as a church, we must meet together. And we must be allowed to do that. And we must find ways to do that and to neglect that or to claim that there are some alternative ways for us to, to be a church. That's just not true. This is required of us. Um. And notice what he says here in verse 25, that those who don't meet are in the habit of not meeting, which tells me that those who do meet, we are in the habit of meeting. How important are our habits when we meet together? Well, I believe our habits are one of the most important or powerful forces in our lives. People underestimate the power of habits. Um, I've said it before, but our habits form our desires more than our desires form our habits. You know what I mean by that? You form a habit doing something and you start to desire that thing. Most people think, well, I got into the bad habit of doing this because I wanted it and then I started doing it. Yeah, sort of. Start making a right habit of something and you'll start to want that thing. Our habits form our desires more than our desires form our habits. But here's the other truth that you can take to the, uh, to the bank on this. This is, this is really important stuff. Habits plus fellowship plus one another plus community equals the most powerful human force in the world. What do I mean by that? Well, not only do we have personal habits, we have community habits. And just as your personal habits are the most powerful force in your life, uh, humanly speaking, our community habits form a very powerful force among us corporately. And it's important for us to have those habits together. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say here. But when we do things habitually together, it's not just tradition, it's not just a rut. It is a powerful force that compels us and propels us, hopefully, in the right direction. So if the, if personal habits are the most imp- powerful for human force about you, corporate habits are the most powerful human force about us as a group. Think about this now, level three. Add to this the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit upon us as a community, as a church, and we are on fire. Corporate Habits empowered by the Holy Spirit are the most unstoppable force in the world. The church has been called to lead in this way. I found an interesting story here uh, this week about uh, a guy, Philip Hale, who, after World War II, found out about a little village in France that had done a remarkable job of protecting the Jews during the Nazi occupation. There were many towns in France where most of the Jews were were killed uh, by the Nazis. But this one town in particular had saved almost all the Jews within their village. And this guy, um, Philip Hale, wanted to discover why these people did this. How did it happen? They seemed so ordinary. They seemed just like normal people. What was the difference in this town that led them to be so courageous and to do something so heroic? And after interviewing many of them, he thought, you know what, these people are, are basically just like everybody else. But he could find only one distinct difference. He found that near a remarkably high number of these people were in church every Sunday. They had a habit of just being there. And being a part of that, and he, he he decided that through that 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 connection, and through that community, and through that that experience, they came together and saved the people of their community in ways that others hadn't. That was the distinctive mark that he recognized. Think about the power of the habit of meeting together and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's nothing else like it. He says here that we are to not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but we are to encourage one another, to encourage one another. That's what we do as we come, to to encourage and to motivate and to to inspire. Uh, and, and, And then he says, all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, your Bible if it's like my Bible has the word day there, capitalized. Why would they do that? Why would they put the word day with a capital letter? Well, it's a specific day. Those who would be reading this, it's written to the Hebrews. So the Hebrews know their Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it talks often about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is the day of Christ's coming, we understand it that way now. They didn't understand it fully that way in the Old Testament. It was the day of judgment. It was the, the end. As the end draws near, as the day of Christ's return comes, he's saying encourage one another all the more. And if you're frustrated or worried or concerned about the events in the world and the way things are going, it's all the more important than ever that we be in fellowship. That we be spurring one another on, that we be encouraging one another to hold fast and to draw near. So, why do people struggle with personal devotions for for the sake of holding fast and drawing near? I think there's a very simple reason why we struggle with personal devotions. I think it's because it's too personal, it's too personal. What do we mean by that? Well, I think it means we need to meet together in the habits of community to stir one another up to love and good works. That's what Hebrews 19 is telling us. All throughout the Bible, we see things emphasizing the importance of fellowship. Fellowship as a church. And now I have never found anywhere in the Bible that talks about fellowship for the purpose of having a good time of getting together for recreation. There's nothing wrong with that. Great, we ought to do it. But when we think of fellowship from a biblical point of view, it's about something more than that. There are some references in the Bible to fellowship being about a time of studying and learning God's word together. We see that some. But the primary emphasis of fellowship in the Bible is always this time of stirring each other up to love and good deeds, of, of drawing near, of holding fast. So there's something very specific about it, that fellowship is for the purpose of holding fast in Christ, of drawing near to God, and that we need this. We need one another for this to work. John Wesley had what he called his general rules for Methodists There were three of them, and they were simple. Do no harm, do good, and attend on all the ordinances of God. Do no harm, do good, attend on all the ordinances of God. Now, what does that mean, the last one there? Well, go to church, read your Bible, pray, stuff like that. He said, if you can do those, you're a good Methodist. But he found that many of those who wanted to be Methodists struggled in keeping up. And so he started what he called class meetings. Now, this was, you know, 250 plus years ago. But they had these class meetings, they called them. They were basically small groups, but they didn't meet just to do a Bible study. Uh, They didn't meet just to have supper together. They might have done those things, but the purpose of the class meeting was to get together and to just say, how is your life in God? How are you doing today spiritually? How is your walk with the Lord? And then to just honestly answer that question. It's not about bearing your whole soul, but it is opening up a bit and saying, hey, how are we going to spur one another on to draw near, to hold fast, to be who God wants us to be? And we're going to come back to that question in more detail next Sunday. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us to draw near to you and to hold fast to your promises. Lord, help us to stir one another up to love and to good deeds and help us not to neglect meeting together. But Lord, we want to to live in your way and the way that you've called us to do that by coming together, knowing that we can do this um, in a way that shapes us and molds us into being who you want us to be as people and as a church. Encourage us where we're at, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.